This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So in a sense, what I'm going to present today is a stage two of a conversation I've been having with my friend George in the past few years. So you can see the other side, or rather, rather the other side, I will try to show you how actually there's not really the other side, as really truth and beauty are really together, okay? And so it doesn't really matter whether one starts from beauty or one starts from truth. At the end of the day, it's the same thing. So it doesn't really matter. There is no contrast between beauty and truth. And I personally convinced that uh, even the kind of uh, exaggeration of aesthetics in our current world is a reduction. It's not beauty in its full sense. It's not like a bad beauty. There is no bad beauty. There is imperfect beauty. There is incomplete beauty. And that's where things start going wrong. But anyway, I hope you will understand what I tried to say after the end of the talk. So today I'm going to talk about uh, the nature of Catholic art according to an artist. So not according to a theologian, not according to a thinker, but according to someone who did art himself. And arguably, the artist I'm going to talk about is one of the most successful Catholic artists, especially in the modern world. And this is Jair Tolkien. And the question I'm going to address is exactly what does it mean for Tolkien, who was a committed Christian, to be a Catholic writer? What does it mean? Why, in what sense one is a Catholic writer? Or to put in a different way, what is the origin, the nature, the purpose of a Catholic imagination? And they stress the word imagination because it's quite clear that what Tolkien does is to imagine things. The world of Middle-earth does not really exist. The hobbies do not exist. So this is all imagined, okay? How can imagination have to do with uh, Catholicism, with Christianity, with the Catholic truth? Uh, at the same time, and I, I hope you can follow on the handout, please, I, I'm quoting and referring even without reading uh, to everything I put on the handout, that God and faith, Catholic faith, have something to do with Tolkien and with this Middle-earth world in particular is very difficult to deny because Tolkien himself, the handout, described the Lord of the Rings having been built on or out, very interesting difference, certain religious ideas, which focus on a conflict about God, in some, Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. That's what Tolkien himself says. Following Tolkien's words, many books, many scholars, many articles have tried in a way to distill the religious element out of the story. And in doing so, they often approach the Lord of the Rings as if they were an allegory. We heard yesterday what an allegory is. Okay, you express uh, some truth, uh, some doctrine uh, through veil of imagination, you imagine things. And some people are therefore look for symbolic meaning of events or characters. They reconstructed the moral or theological doctrine supporting from the narrative. In the US in particular, there is really a war at the moment between people who have approached Tolkien in that way and therefore are very upset with changes that perhaps the Amazon Prime series have done on, on the original canon. And on the other side, instead, there are people who uh, don't care about the religion, they don't like religion, and therefore they approach Tolkien with a different perspective. And you can see there is a clash which has to do really a bit with this, okay, with the religious identity of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, my position, if you want, is a third way, okay, neither one side nor the other side, if you want. Because I do think that actually, uh, according to the point of art, according to Tolkien, is not really to transform and hide elements of the Catholic doctrine 
into symbolic uh, or allegorical taste of characters. That's why Tolkien notoriously was very opposed to allegory. Not because he said that there people like allegory, but that's not what I do. It was not against allegory generally, it was against the allegory as a way to interpret his own work. And we know that, uh, we know that according to him, the Lord of the Rings is not really about Catholic doctrine, because at the same time, in a few letters, uh, he gave a very interesting answer to the question about what the Lord of the Rings is about. Again, you find it on the handout. This is really an answer to a letter which was published on the New York Times, which argued that the Lord of the Rings was a religious work. And he said, the Lord of the Rings instead is to me, anyway, largely an essay in linguistic aesthetic. As I sometimes say to people who ask me what it is all about, it is not about anything but itself. There was really an answer to a question, a writer was said, uh, and I think it was really W.H. Holden, was saying, okay, this is, a, this is a very Catholic work, and he said, not really, it's not about anything apart but itself. And uh, in another letter, he stressed, again, I'll read from the handout, nobody believes me when I say that my long book is an attempt to create a world in which a form of language agreeable, you see the aesthetics, the hedonistic uh, dimension, if you want, agreeable to my personal aesthetic, my same real, but it is true. So my aim today is to address this apparent paradox. On the one hand, the Catholic identity of Tolkien's work, which he himself recognizes, this is a Catholic work, but at the same time, this strong refusal to describe the Lord of the Rings as a Catholic allegory, a refusal which I think is related to this strange, mysterious claim about the self-referential linguistic aesthetic nature of his work. I will then explore the implication of this, uh, if you want, Christian aestheticist approach. I do think the two things can go together to art artistic creation in order to shed light on Tolkien's vision about the nature and purpose of Christian art. I think the question is clear. We can start. So we start with our journey with number one on the handout. We start with a momentous episode of Tolkien's life, which took place during his university years in Oxford, which I think can be considered the foundation stone, the igniting spark of all Tolkien's mythology. We are in 1914, more than a century ago, right at the beginning of the First World War, and this time Tolkien was pursuing his interest in Anglo-Saxon, in Old English, and one day came across a strange name from an ancient poem written in, uh, in Anglo-Saxon, in English, which he found in the Bible College. And this name is this very mysterious name, Earendel, which uh, uh, struck, uh, the really struck Tolkien out of sheer aesthetic beauty. He said his very, very beautiful name. I didn't know what it meant, but uh, I found it very, very beautiful. Uh, we know that because in a uh, quote that you find on the end of page one on the handout, he re recollects this particular experience. Hail, Arendelle, brightest of angels, above the Middle Earth sent unto men. And that's the quotation from this eighth century Anglo-Saxon poem called The Christ. When I came across the citation in the dictionary, I felt a curious thrill, as if something had stirred in me, half wakened from sleep. There was something very remote and strange and beautiful behind those words, if I could grasp it, far beyond ancient English. I know more now, of course. The quotation comes from the Christ, though exactly what the author meant is not so certain. And I found it so beautiful that just a couple of weeks ago, this telescope, Hubble Space Telescope, was sent uh, into the outer space and it caught the light of the eldest uh, 
a most distant star, and the name of the star was given as Erendel. You can see the picture in the bottom of the page one on the hand. That was really taken a couple of weeks ago. And there is a connection there because a great Tolkien scholar works for the for the Hubble Space Telescope, so I really wanted to give this name to the oldest star. So the oldest star, the, the one beyond, is named in that particular way. Now, to be honest, I've, I've already said everything, okay? I'm going just to unpack what I've just said. Why human beings spend billions of, of dollars to send a telecom on space to catch the light uh, very far away? Uh, this could be the pointless, if you want. Okay? This is clear, there is nothing to do with uh, um, with the technology, okay? We're not trying to discover a new iPhone, okay? We are doing this for something which has nothing to do with the utilitarianism, okay? There is not a, a clear purpose, utilitarian purpose beyond something like that. And that's, if you want, what the Arendelle is about. So if you go back to the passage which I put on the end of page number one, in this passage, we already see some of the key features of Tolkien's creative method and also creative uh, theology, if you want. This includes the pure linguistic aesthetic appeal of the name, first of all, it's a beautiful name, and also the uncertainty of meaning at the beginning. Not, the, but not because it does not have a meaning, because it does have a meaning, and in a way we'll discover the meaning later on, but the meaning is not there at the beginning. At the beginning there is the aesthetic fascination. And also note the imagery which is used to describe this particular experience of someone half-waken from sleep. Remember this, because I will come back. Tolkien will refer to this uh, seminal encounter with Erendil many times. Put you another quote. The most important name is Erendil. When first studying Anglo-Saxon professionally, uh, I was struck by the great beauty of this word, euphonic to a peculiar degree. You see, it's all about pleasure. It's about aesthetic. Uh, it's about, not about meaning, if you want. And uh, what is, however, that's, you can start moving to number two on the handout, and that's really a, a crucial point. So we start with aesthetic fascination. It's a beautiful name, strange and mysterious, but that, this is just the starting point. This is really the starting point of a journey. There is a journey, there is an adventure. That's the source of the adventure, if you want an aesthetic call, but this sets in motion what I may call a heuristic process a process of discovery, which aims to find out what is the meaning of the name. So what uh, Tolkien started to do, and he, we know that because we have traces of this uh, scientific uh, journey, if you want, was to do, started to do his own job. Tolkien was a philologist, so someone who was interested in the relation, history of languages. So the very first step of his heuristic discovery was uh, uh, try to understand from a scientific point of view what uh, uh, what the what the, what meant. That's number two one on the handout. You see, we don't have to read it, okay? But this is like himself trying to etymologizing the name, trying to find connections and so on, using, if you want, ration, uh, ratio, sorry, it was quoted Latin, reason, using human reason, science, even science, I will stress science, even science, there's nothing wrong with science, okay? At the very beginning, uh, Tolkien started to use a uh, scientific method. But this scientific ex exegesis, uh, which uh, he did using dictionaries and uh, manuscripts and so on, was just the beginning of the journey and actually developed later on in what is typical for Tolkien into what I may call an aesthetic heuristic, an artistic heuristic, which, what, which meant for Tolkien started to understand what is the true desire, sorry, the true meaning, the real uh, discovery behind a particular encounter. Why 
was I meant to encounter Erendel in that way? And we were moving to number 2-2 two, two on the handout. And, uh, and as Tolkien says in this quote, the name could not just be adopted just like that. So Tolkien started to use this name and put it into his mythology. At this time, he was inventing a mythology, the beginning of the Silmarillion for the people of Reddit. And he took the Arendel character and put it in the Silmarillion, but he started to invent a story about it. Uh, started to invent a story about Erendil, and actually at the very foundation of the legendarium was Tolkien's attempt to understand what was the meaning of Erendil by inventing a story about it. And that's, if you want, is the seed of everything. Everything started with this particular encounter. Because what Tolkien did just a few days later, in September 1914, he started to write a poem about Erendil. We have it. He wrote it not very far away from here, actually, in Yorkshire. He started to write a poem with We Have It, that's in number two, three on the handout. He wrote this poem, then he gave this poem to one of his best friends, who is called G.B. Smith, and actually said, I don't know what the poem is about. And, uh, and uh, Smith uh, told, told him, okay, try to find out then. And he said, okay, I'm going to do that, okay. And so he started to write a new version of the, of the poem, then another one, and then he expanded the poem into a proper story, which was one of the main foundation stories of the Silmarillion. So you see, this is a typical way of doing art for Tolkien, an aesthetic fascination, and then a scientific, if you want, analysis, and then the invention of a story to give the true meaning, to discover the true meaning about the particular, um, about the particular name. Indeed, for that poem, early poem about Erendil, Tolkien started to develop a full narrative, a complex narrative, which is epitomized then in the secondary etymology that he found for this particular name. That's number two, one. It's what I call a creative etymologizing. What does Erendil mean? And he invented essentially an Elvish language. And through the Elvish language came to say that actually the true name of Erendil is the sea lover and the hope bringer. And this is really, if you want, again, for the people who know the Silmarillion, they will know what I'm talking about. But this story of Erendil as the Silover is, if you want, the most important story of the Silmarillion. It's the most important story of, uh, um, of the legendarium. I will just recall it very quickly for you. There is this character who is called Erendil, who is driven by a sea longing. He longs for the sea doesn't know exactly why he does it, but it longs for the sea. And then eventually, led by this desire, sails a forbidden route, which connects the Middle Earth, let's say the fallen world, to the land of the Valar, the gods of Tolkien, who is, which is on the other side of the ocean, which is called Valinor. And he goes there and he implores mercy. He asks for, ask for mercy from the gods and from the god above him, who is our God, and the God decides to intervene. They, in following the quest of Erendi, they come back to Middle Earth, and that's if you want the beginning of the story of Middle Earth. Erendi is essentially the one who leads the way from fallen world back to the world of the gods, to the blessed world. That's a, he has a very important role then in the history of Tolkien's legendarium, and he does it carried by this love for the sea. This is just an example, okay? So what I've described so far is just one case study within a vast range of Tolkienian narrative which should be traced back to a serendipitous linguistic intuition, mysterious and self-referential at first, no meaning at the beginning, which is only later explained and unfolded into a narrative. If you move to number three, 
this, you can see how this pattern of composition should be applied on the macro level to the whole of Tolkien's literary activity. We, I just read one, uh, I just read one quote. To me, a name comes first and the story follows. I once scribbled Hobbit on a blank page and it was some time before I discovered what he referred to. You see the same dynamic. Oh, if you want serendipitous intuition, aesthetic intuition, a name, and then a long journey of discovery and of unpacking through a narrative the meaning of the particular name. What is also interesting in this second passage is that uh, there is a clear connection between this linguistic practice of composition with what was the most eventous, uh, uh, momentous event in Tolkien's literary career, which was the composition, uh, the genesis of The Hobbit. Before The Hobbit, Tolkien never thought of being a, a literary writer. Tolkien was just an academic professor. He wrote The Hobbit. With The Hobbit, actually, his proper academic, uh, right, uh, literary vocation started in this, if you want, mysterious way. Uh, as you think you can imagine, I could go on and talking about uh, English language uh, and Hobbits for the whole evening, but of course, the point of our uh, conference here is a bit different. It's not just about Tolkien, but it's about the relationship between uh, art uh, and uh, the Catholic faith. So I will now move to the second part of my paper, where I will try to discover, to uh, delve into what I've already presented uh, so far. So the question we'll be addressing is, how did Tolkien understand his own particular creative experience? So the creative experience is the one I described to you. First, we start with a linguistic aesthetic fascination, and then the narrative follows. But why, how, why is that? How Tolkien, as a Catholic Christian writer, explained, explained this particular uh, creative process? What, uh, what are the kind of theological, philosophical implications behind this particular dynamic. How did Tolkien explain that? And we move to page three on the handout, the second part of the talk. So we now delve into Tolkien's literary theory, which has a close correlation with his philosophical and theological views. And I use this expression, but what I will actually have to use, as you can see on the handout, is not really theory of views, but what I will call a theoretical self-reflection on an experience, on a creative experience. For Tolkien, experience comes first, and then self-reflection follows. It's not the other way around. You can see how Tolkien is not really a theologian, he's more a writer, he's an artist, but he's also a very devout Catholic. I really like what George said about Mozart's expressing through music his particular experience. I think there is something very similar to Tolkien. Tolkien was a very devout Catholic, going to Mass every single day, taking communion, enamored with the Blessed Sacrament. And that was, if you want, the foundation of everything. And that's what he says in one letter, which I see was quoted in the leaflet you were given today. And then from this particular experience, art follows. And then the self-reflection on art comes at the very end of the, um, of the process. And there are two particular aspects of Tolkien's creative process, which caught the attention of Tolkien's self-reflective mind. And this, uh, number uh, four on the handout, are uh, first of all the, fa the fact that his creative experience is functionless, first, and second, it is unconscious. These are two adjectives that Tolkien uses very often to explain what he's doing. First of all, what he does is functionless. Let's see what that means, number four, one on the handout. And to illustrate his first attribute, if you want, of art, I will start for one character from The Lord of the Rings, 
who is often misunderstood and neglected. And indeed, uh, if you are familiar with the movies, it was removed from the movies. It's no longer there. And this is the character of Tom Bombadil, number 41 on the handout. Tom Bombadil is introduced in The Lord of the Rings for the people who have read it. I suppose you have read The Lord of the Rings, some of you. Who has not read The Lord of the Rings? Who has not watched the movies of The Lord of the Rings? Okay, that's fine. So I will give a bit more information. So there is one character. So I will not give you the son of the Lord of the Rings, but there is one character in the Lord of the Rings who is called Tom Bombadil, who the protagonist of the Lord of the Rings meets at the very beginning of the journey, who looks like a funny character, and he comes in on stage and he starts singing some apparently nonsensical rhymes. You see them on the handout. He sings, "Hey doll, Mary doll, ring a don dillo." It's not really well clear what he's, song, what he's singing about. It looks very funny. Looks uh, a bit of a joke, if you want. And the characters uh, who meet them uh, don't really understand who he is. He dresses in a strange way with yellow, I think, with a yellow hat uh, or weird uh, trousers. So he's a bit of a strange character. And also, what he does, and this is very important. Tom sang most of the time, but it was chiefly nonsense. He sang, he sings a party nonsensical. Uh, Poems, or else, that's clear, that's crucial, perhaps a strange language unknown to the hobbits, that's number four, number four one on the handout, an ancient language whose words were mainly those of wonder and delight. So you see here a very interesting paradox. On the one hand, this language used by Tom Bombadil is nonsensical, doesn't make sense, but on the other, on the other side, actually, it does have a meaning, but the meaning is mysterious. Is a meaning which belongs to the past. It belongs to a time where wonder and delight uh, were uh, the experience of human beings. So it belongs to a pre-fallen world, if you want, to an Eden-like world. And behind this complex, uh, ambiguous world, if you want, there is a philosophy of language, which is you find uh, uh, summarized in number four two on the handout, according to which the language of unfallen creatures, so people before the original sins reflected an original virginal attitude towards reality. How did Adam speak before sin? How did human beings would have spoken without sin? They would have spoken in a way which would express the wonder of humanity in front of created reality. We were created as creatures, and as creatures we were supposed to see with the world as a, cre as a creation by a creator. In our language, which was completely adherent to reality, was the way we, if you want, affirm the beauty of what we are seeing. And that's, we know from the Genesis, why Adam was given the task of giving names to uh, things. It was a, a way to respond to the creative act of the world. And that particular language is, according to Tolkien's uh, imagination, the language spoken by Tom Bombadil. It's a language, as you can see, where there is no, and that's really the point, there is no division between the scientific and the artistic side, between the philosophical and the artistic side. There is no separation in this pre-Edemitic world between beauty and truth. The two things come together. So this original united position, pre-fallen, Adamitic, corresponds to a perfect language made of wholly beautiful words, which feature in a perfect harmony between sound, form, and meaning. That's a very important philosophy of language, very Christian, I will say. If you want, it's also already found in Augustine to a certain extent, which explained much of what Tolkien was doing. There are a few other references to this 
linguistic theory. I put in some of them, number four, three on the handout. What for me is important to stress is the main features of the perfect language of Tom Bombadil are wonder, delight, and also newness. This language is always new. It's never static, it's dynamic. The, the language reflects the ongoing work of creation of God. God keeps creating the world, so language keeps reflecting the dynamic process of the creation. A very important feature in the of, the, of this perfect language, this artistic language, if you want, of Tom Bombadil, and I ask you to move to number 44 on the handout, the following page is the fact that this language is non-functionalist. Here I'm going to linguistic theory, I don't want to get too technical, but very briefly I would say that there is an idea, according to some philosophers, according to which the language is purely a functional tool. Language has nothing to do with beauty, it's always only functional. Total was strongly opposed to this idea, is the functionalist approach to language, and uh, instead uh, uh, describe the world language and art, we, will, we may say, with the categories of beauty and love, as you can see from uh, number four, four on the handout. A language from his own sake, free from being useful. That's really what Tolkien was interested in. And this contrast between function and love is found at, a, at another level as well, which is number four, five on the handout, in relation to the contrast between art and power. On the one hand, you have art, which is functionless, which is gratuitous, which is, if you want, even self-referential. On the other hand, is the attempt of power, the, the, the attempt of human beings to control, to put... Uh, uh, to dominate other minds, other human beings. And if you are familiar now with the Lord of the Rings, you will see how this is a very important, crucial theme. So this functionless idea of Tolkien's language, Erendil as a beautiful name, is just an archetype of a general uselessness or gratuitousness of art, according to Tolkien. He should not have any other goal apart from creating beauty. We already heard a bit of that already from um, today's discussion of George, whether uh, beauty is possible if you if you appropriate, if you take it, if you eat it up, is it really possible? We can have a discussion about whether wine or not is art, but in general, the approach is what we're talking about. The opposite of this gratuitous art, so an art which is contemplated, is power, whose aim instead is to reform and control. So we can say uh, how an original aesthetic gratuitousness is the main attribute of Tolkien's literary work from its meaningless linguistic inspiration down to its storytelling. So we can start understanding why Tolkien says, as you can see uh, from the bottom of point four five, that the Lord of the Rings is a work of narrative art of which the object aimed at by the author was to be enjoyed as such, to be read with literary pleasure. That's really the starting That's the and I find this very interesting, this rejection of a utilitarian conception of art. And for Tolkien, even using art to express Catholic doctrine is utilitarian to a certain extent. This rejection of the utilitarian conception, this meaningless or literary invention, is, I think, similar to a certain extent to the position of people like Oscar Wilde or Walter Pat. Okay, so he's talking an aestheticist then. And I would say yes and no. Yes, is an aestheticist, but that's the starting point. That's, if you want, the main difference. Uh, like today, when John was saying, uh, the problem with this 
uh, aestheticism as such is that it closes things. Instead for talking, that's the beginning of a journey. It's not, you don't go in circle around the aesthetic fascination. You start from aesthetic fascination, but then you need to move on. You need to walk the journey of exegesis if you want. There is therefore a necessary journey that you need to walk from the aesthetic fascination at the very beginning, and this is the journey of the rediscovery of meaning. At the end of the day, there is truth, and that's the point that Tolkien says in another letter. At the end of the day, my whole goal is to uh, proclaim and defend truth. But the way it does it is by, if you want, purify the minds and the eyes of human beings by starting from an aesthetic fascination, because that's, if you want, the original position with which human beings were created. The recognition of truth was, if you want, the fruit of a virginal position in front of the beauty of creation. But to explain better what I mean by this, I need to briefly introduce the second key feature of Tolkien's self-reflection on his creative process, which is his unconsciousness. And that's number five on the end out. I've used a couple of times so far the word invention. The word invention may suggest an intentional intellectual pursuit in the sense uh, I know what I'm going to find out. But always Tolkien described his creative process instead as involving a degree of unconsciousness. There is a walk, which is known as the Lost Road, where we clearly see, we clearly see that. And I'm reading for number five, one on the handout. And that's a very interesting walk, a meta-literary walk, in which Tolkien, if you want, explains in narrative form how his creative process work. And the dreams, they came and went. But lately, they have been getting more frequent and more absorbing, but still tantalizingly linguistic. No tale, no remember pictures, only fragments of words, sentences, verses. That's according to Tolkien, uh, everything about uh, what he does. He has, if you want, fragments of words, sentences, and verses that come to his mind almost in a dreamlike situation. And these are then later uh, put together and then with a hard work converted into a story, into a narrative. It's quite clear that there is a connection between this novel from which I've just read an excerpt uh, and what Tolkien was doing because this novel is about uh, these two people who at the end of uh, the novel recover the story of Numenor. They go back to the recover one story about uh, which is going to be at the center of the Amazon series in September, by the way. And according to Tolkien, uh, the content of the story was revealed to him in a dream. And quite often he explains, and it's number 952, that he himself had that dream. He had a dream uh, which is a very interesting dream of, uh, of a fallen island uh, overcome by the water. And he said, I had this Atlantis uh, dream. And in a sense, what I was trying to do in my writing was to exercise, to express uh, what was conveyed to me by this particular dream. So it's quite clear that in Tolkien, there is a connection between dreaming and writing, by dreaming, between dreaming and doing art. It's a clear meta-artistic in dreaming. I'll give you a point. Examples are number five, uh, two, and three, and four, and five, and the head of the page number five. You don't have the time to go through all over it, but if you, but if you read a lot of dreams, uh, you will see how dreams are important. Frodo has very important dreams in the Lord of the Rings, uh, which somehow always anticipate what he's going to face. And uh, if you remember again, uh, from in the, during his encounter with Mombadil, he has a dream when he's going to Valinor at the end of the story. So at the very beginning of the Lord of the Rings, Ford already dreams his future. So we already get, if you want, the happy ending. But 
they will take it a bit too far away. But for me, what is important to, to stress is this idea of unconsciousness. Tolkien, the artist, creates without actually knowing what he's doing. He's, the meaning found in what he's doing does not come from himself. Or better, does not come from his intention. It's not an intellectual act. There is meaning what he does, but this is meaning is discovered by the artist. The artist uh, has the urge to create something beautiful, or better, is inspired to create something beautiful, and then is called to, if you want, see uh, with, beauty, with wonder, uh, to recognize with wonder the truth uh, hidden in what he has done. I will just read uh, a quote, uh, which I think is found on number five, six, which I think is very clear in uh, stating in what sense, therefore, talking does not like considering the Lord of the Rings and I would say Christian art in general as uh, an allegorical form of expressing Catholic truth. As for message, I have no message really. If by that, it was, if by that is meant the conscious purpose in writing, the Lord of the Rings, in writing the Lord of the Rings, conscious purpose of preaching or of delivering myself of a vision of truth specially revealed to me. I was primarily writing an exciting story in an atmosphere and background such I find personal attractive. You see, the attraction, the aesthetic uh, fascination is the first part. The message, because there is a message, comes later. It does not come from a conscious purpose of writing, of preaching, or of delivering a message. That's what Catholic art is for talking. So this last quote brings us back to what I was saying before about the functionalness of creative invention, and it integrates, if you want, all stages of composition into a single framework. That's number six on the handout. Because you can see how all these different creative stages, from language invention, and from interest in language, to storytelling, are similarly connected. As you can see on the handout, they are chained together in a hierarchical order, if you want, which can be traced back to a moment of linguistic fascination, self-referential, a loving act of aesthetic research, Erendil, so I, will, I like the word Erendil, but this aesthetic gratuitousness with its, upper, with its apparent functionless and unconsciousness applies then to all stages of composition. This is a very beautiful. So we start with, a, if you want, contemplation of the beauty of a name, then you want to move forward. You want to invent, okay, but what is the background of this name? Who, is this, who was the character behind this name? What was his story? But at each single stage, at a certain point, there will be a moment of contemplation. Paradoxically, for talking, creating, or creative writing is an act of contemplation. Is an act of active contemplation. Because when you contemplate, somehow you want to go deeper. You want to delve into what you are contemplating. So it's a paradox. It's another paradox which is very if at the core of what Tolkien is doing. That is to say, the contemplative gaze of the artist for Tolkien never stops on a particular frame of the picture, but driven by an inspired aesthetic urge, widens into discovering more and more the context and the origin of the detail. And to clarify what I mean by that, I will read a, a quote from a beautiful meta-literary a short story which is called Live by Nigel, which Tolkien describes what it does. Nigel, myself, is talking really about Tolkien, used to spend a long time on a single leaf, trying to catch his shape and his sheen and the glistening of dewdrops on its edges, 
So the artistic process with a fascination for something very, very, very small, a detail. Today we are talking about the localization. I think this is very clear. You need to start from where you are. You need to start from the detail, the interest and the love for the little thing you have. That's really with everything. Yet, that's the point, you want to paint a whole tree with all of its leaves in the same style and all of them different. And there was one particular, one picture in particular which bothered him. He had begun with a leaf caught in the wind and then he became a tree. And the tree grew, sending out innumerable branches and threshing out the most fantastic roots. Then all around the tree and behind it, to the gaps in the leaves and boughs, a country began to open out. And there were glimpses of the forest marching over the land and of mountains. You see, the whole journey from the little from a little leaf to the whole world, to the mountains glimpsing at the end of a forest. And if you want, that's really the contemplative dynamic of the artist, from the leaf to the mountains. And that, that's why the aestheticism, if you want, is a starting point, but if you're really true to your aesthetic fascination, you want to discover the connection. You cannot stop at the leaf. I, I'm very convinced that, that's why I was talking about reduction before, if aestheticism is staying on a leaf and not thinking about the meaning, not thinking about the mountains, the mountains for Tolkien are really allegories of God's truth, it, because you're not really going, you're not really following your fascination. A true uh, artistic driver necessarily drives people to move, the artist to move from the leaf to the mountains. But what is very important to me is that each step of the artistic composition, the leaf, the tree, the forest, and the mountains, is self-referential, meaning it is singular, it is functionless, and needs to be so in order to produce gratuitous beauty, which urges to proceed to the following stage. That really is the paradox. Because it is gratuitous, then it pushes you forward. Because it is functionless, it pushes you to look for a function and for a meaning. Because it looks meaningless, it drives you to go forward in the meaning. The deeper meaning, the mountains, that is to say the truth, the cut of the crystal truth hidden behind the aesthetic fascination, is discovered, is consciously recognized only after the aesthetic event. It is eventually, I really like the word eventually in English, the etymological sense. It comes after an event. It's not there at the beginning. This dynamic journey of creation involves a degree of unconsciousness, as I said, which also explains why there is this clear association between dreaming and artistic creation. But here, and we're moving to number seven, we're going even deeper if you want to be going on, because it's not just like that. This artistic dreaming, okay, we have described so far a process which seems to be very personal. It's just an uh, artist with his artistic fascination and his urge to broaden up and travel the path of meaning, the path that leads to truth. But this is not a mechanical product of the psychological experiences of a single individual. You see here again how materialism and naturalism reduce something, okay? It's not just a psychological reaction. It's not just the artist trying to kind of uh, reflect his psychological experience. For talking, the artistic event is an inspiration. Everything which I've just said is not just human beings as such, but are human beings inspired by someone else. It is the echo of some other voice, a dream which some other mind is waving. So if I talk about artistic creation as a dream, 
But what is also very interesting in Tolkien, and you can see number seven on the handout, the dreams in Tolkien are never in as perhaps we can think in a Jungian or uh, psychoanalytic framework, the product of our psychological reaction. Okay, that's what we think nowadays. But for Tolkien, the dreams that we dream are all inspired. The dreams is the space where some divine beings interact with us. I'm reading from number seven on the handout. Uh, in Faerian drama, in literature, if you want, you are in a dream. So it is a very interesting passage from a very important essay of Tolkien where he's attacking uh, psychoanaly psychoanalysis uh, and psycholog psychological uh, art, if you want. And he says, yes, dreams are important to understand what the artist does, but there's a key difference. In literature, Faerian drama, I won't explain what that means, but in literature, you are in a dream that some other mind is waving. So it's not your dream. It's, it's someone else's dream. This idea is very present in the Tolkien's Legendarium. I put your number seven one on the handout. In the early drafts of the Silmarillion, there are very many, many dreams sent to all the different characters, and all these dreams come directly from the Valar. The Valar are the gods of Middle-earth, the angels, in the Catholic tradition, the Valar will be the angels, the seraphims, and so on. And these angels are the ones that, if you want, lead and accompany human beings and elves, that is to say, artists, human beings, in the journey of life. And this Valar, the first way they communicate with other creatures is by sending dreams. And it's quite clear that dream has a very important artistic meaning also in the Lord of the Rings. I can read a passage, for instance, uh, the, which I put uh, number 72 on the handout. For the people of the Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, this comes from a very beautiful scene, which is uh, uh, some, uh, <coughs> some uh, who is despairing because Fodor has, uh, has been captured and it's like locked up in the top of the tower of Kirithungol. And then some says, Galadriel, he said faintly, then he heard voices far off but clear. The music of the elves as it came through his sleep in the hall of fire in the house of Errand, Gilthonelia Elberet, and then in his tongue was loosed, and his voice cried in a language which he did not know. If you want in the image, this image of singing in a language which you do not know, inspired to you in a dreamless situation, you have epitomized what artistic creation is according to Tolkien. Because we see here again all the elements I've discussed so far the sudden origin of a linguistic inspiration, which is meaningless, the language which he didn't know, the dream-like imagery, there are the, his true sleep, and also the otherness of the inspiration. He, he heard voices far off. As well, finally, the meta-artistic implication. It's a music. And this is a very important moment of the Lord of the Rings, and there are many moments like that. I put some of them in number seven, three, the number seven, four, on the handout, where you can see how uh, characters very often are inspired by some other power, and the way they are inspired drive them to create something beautiful, to become artists themselves. But we have another important question to address. What is the source of this linguistic inspiration? First part, I talk about the dynamic of linguistic inspiration down to this discovery of meaning. And so far, I've shown you how in all this process, uh, uh, the artist is not alone. He's, if you want, or she's dialoguing, she's in dialogue with someone else. She 
they are inspired by someone else, but who is this someone else? And the answer comes from a letter, I think, which you find on number eight, one on the handout. We're talking explicitly says that the Holy Spirit sometimes speaks through a human mouth, providing art, virtue, and insight he does not himself possess. And that's really what Tolkien thinks about artistic creation. The beauty, the meaning, the art, the virtue, and the insight of art does not really come from the human mouth. The human mouth is a bit of a vessel for someone else. And if you want the freedom and the ethical uh, component of, the, of the, the artistic work has to do with, this, uh, with the availability to accept, to become a vessel, to become a mouth. The same idea of divine inspiration, which can be found all away, all uh, in the Tolkien's legendarium, where the source of the dreams is quite often explicitly identified as a, a one of the gods, one of the valas, one of the angels. There is one god in particular, if you move to number eight on the handout, who is the god Ulmo. I don't know how many of you have read the Silmarillion, but one important card in the Silmarillion is called Ulmo, and Ulmo is an angel, because that's what he is, who has been given the task by the god, Iluvatar, really to uh, instruct human beings through music. And the music of Ulmo is water, and in particular is the sea. Ulmo, according to Tolkien's mythology, is essentially uh, singing through water. And whether, wherever we approach water, whether a spring, whether a river, or the sea, we will start listening to the music of creation, and therefore being drawn back to look for God, essentially. And who is the greatest lover of the sea, as we saw at the beginning, is Erendel. Erendel is really someone, an artist, who kind of follows his fascination, uh, which comes to him from the sea and travels a whole journey to go to the other side, to go to the transcendent, if you want, and open a path, reopen a path from fallen Middle Earth to the unfallen world of the angels. There is one myth in particular in the Silmarillion, for the people who are familiar with it, which is the Anulindale, which opens the Silmarillion. It's a Genesis myth, it's based on Genesis. And in this, uh, in this myth, which I really encourage you to read if you are not familiar with that, we have God who creates the world through the agency of the angels. And the angels, the Ainur, are in fact uh, artists. Tolkien himself makes very, very clear that this myth is a meta-literary myth where Tolkien explains what is the purpose of the artist. And in this myth, the artists are, if you want, collaborators of God in creating what? In creating a world which is beautiful. And it's very interesting that in this, as you can see in number 83 on the handout, that to the Valar, this musical composition at the beginning had no purpose behind its own beauty. It's very, you see, again, the same sort of idea we saw before. The angels, the Ainu, create the world. They don't understand what they're doing apart from creating beauty. And only at the very end, they discover that actually there is a meaning what they've done. And the meaning is that through them, God has created something new. And something new, it's us, human beings, we are, according to Tolkien, have been created to the participation of the Ainu. The angels have not created human beings, but there was the need of the angels to create new beauty. So to, if you want to unpack the meaning of this very beautiful myth, 
artists collaborate with God in bringing on, bringing forward his creation. They are vessels of the creative power of God. So I can say that imagination, creative writing in the case of Tolkien, is not an intellectual project, but it is a gratuitous inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be accepted and embraced and eventually recognized as a gift. This is a beautiful idea of a gift. Going back to the Nigol episode I was talking before, Nigol, this artist, protagonist of this meta-literary short story, at the end of the story, he sees his own creation and he says, it's a gift. And Tolkien himself, according to his daughter Priscilla, who died just a couple of months ago, said when he, the Lord of the Rings was published, it's a gift. So paradoxically, we can see how the true artist recognizes that what he has done is a gift that had been given to himself. He has, kind of, if you want, participated in the creation, in the case of Tolkien of the Lord of the Rings, but he was not really the only one, okay? He was, if you want, a sort of, a, analogically speaking, a marriage between, a relationship between the Holy Spirit and the creative freedom of the writer. I think I have another five minutes, which I'm going to, uh, use and to address a final question, which I think uh, we have so far neglected. It's number nine on the handout, and it's really the question about what this is then all about. So I think uh, you should have understood by now how Tolkien explains the creative process. It's a process of uh, inspiration, a dynamic process of inspiration, which starts with an aesthetic fascination for something, for a detail, but if truly lived, uh, develops into a discovery and a journey of discovery, which at the end of the day will find the meaning, the meaning behind the beauty. But what's the point of it? Okay, that's the how creative art works, according to Tolkien, at least, at least for Tolkien. But what is then the meaning, the function or message of Tolkien's creative work? Okay, if the message comes at the very end, if the um, meaning is not at the beginning, but it's only at the end, what is that? And that will be really the final question and thanks for your patience. That's number nine on the handout. There will be the final leg, the final short leg, if you want. And again, this final leg, I will go back to the hero I was referring at the beginning, this uh, hero Erendil, the name, which was the name of this now star, the eldest star of our universe. And it's quite interesting that, uh, as I already mentioned some at the beginning, that eventually Tolkien discovered the meaning of Erendil. Who is Erendil? And uh, within uh, the primary world, that is to say the poem where the name is found, Erendil is the prophet of Christ. Erendil, Tolkien discovered, is the one, the pagan, if you want, the pagan expression which, uh, um, the pagan, it's a bit difficult to explain, but for Tolkien, Erendil is the name given to John the Baptist, okay? So, so Erendil was a kind of a, a imperfect understanding of, of John the Baptist, so of a prophet of Christ. And Tolkien will say in a letter that he understood that even paganism, everything, every artistic uh, uh, event at the end of the day is prophetic of Christ. Everything which is pre-Christian, if, if it is truly true and truly beautiful, will prophetize Christ. Everything is connected to Christ, the past and the future and the present. And the, from a literal perspective, the um, type, the form through which everything in the past, pre-Christian, is connected to Christ is to prophecy. Erendel is prophetic of Christ, is the prophet of Christ. But within 
uh, told this mythology, Eredel is, I would say, a prophet of Christ, but more specifically, is also the sea lover. Erendel is a hero who is restless. He's someone who has been struck by the longing for the sea and has been compelled by dreams, the same artistic dreams I've been talking about, to go back, to open a way to the land of the gods. So we can say how Erendel's sea longing has to do with a creature's desire to reconnect with the, some lost divinity. And what is also very important is that this desire is inspired by the very divinity. So if you want, as you really see, is God in begging and looking for human beings through an artistic event. That's really what Erendel does. Erendel is himself a poet. Erendel composes poems himself and travels from the secondary, from the world of Middle Earth, our fallen world, back to the God. It creates this sort of, of connection. What is also important in this number 9-2 on the handout is that there is a clear strong connection between sea longing and hope. The meaning of Arendelle is the sea lover, the one who has been inspired by the gods to travel on the sea, the journey, the adventure of meaning, if you want, but at the same time is also a bringer of hope. And that's really the two things come together. And this connection, this role of uh, Erendil as the hope bringer is also found in the Lord of the Rings for the people of Reddit. I put you on an example on the handout. Aya Erendil Elenon Kaliman and quoted from number 92 on the handout. He cried and knew not what he had spoken. Again, for it seemed there another voice spoke through his clear untraveled by the fall air of the pit. We are in, if you remember the scene, we are in the Shelob's lair, the darkest place uh, in the whole of the Lord of the Rings. And at this very moment, um, Frodo holds Erendil's light in his hands. That's the file given to him by, by Galadriel. That's the light of Erendil. And by holding this flame, he says this very word. He cries, he prays, if you want, to Erendil. And again, it's important this is inspired. It's another voice. And it's meaningless. He does not understand it. It's meaningless to him. He does have a meaning. This is a prayer but he does not understand the meaning at the beginning. And this line that I just read is a quote from the very line of the Christ from which everything started. So at the very end, Tolkien put that line within the Lord of the Rings in this particular message. So if you want in this particular passage, you have the prophecy of Christ through Erendil, which is what brings hope. The two things come together. And if you want, here we see the meaning of Erendil discovered at the very end. This was written in the 1950s, so 40 years after the particular fascination. But it is as if uh, Tolkien had to do 40 years to understand what was the purpose of that line and so on. Uh, I think uh, I, can, uh, I can jump uh, 9.3 and 9.4 because... Uh, uh, I repeat or clarify things that I already said, but I will move now straight to number 10 at the very end. If you want, uh, I will try to summarize in, really in a couple of minutes what I've been trying to say is that uh, uh, what I've been trying to say today, essentially going back to the original question, is that uh, artistic creation, the Lord of the Rings, let's say the Lord of the Rings for Tolkien, has only one particular purpose. And the meaning of purpose is to create purposeless beauty new purposeless beauty but this new purposeless beauty because it collaborates with creation becomes very meaningful and that's why Tolkien say in the quote of put number 10 that uh, the main function if you want of art is to the liberation 
from the channels the creator is known to have used already. This is the fundamental function of sub-creation, as they call it, of artistic creation. This is a tribute to the infinity of his potential variety, one of the ways in which, indeed, it is exhibited. You see how Tolkien, really, how, what, what fantastic role Tolkien gives to artistic creation. I would say, therefore, that this is the task of a Catholic imagination, according to Tolkien, in a nutshell, to give attributes to the infinity of God's potential variety, not by translating doctrine into allegories, or to repeat the doctrine into an allegory, but by creating new gratuitous functionalist beauty. It's quite clear that all the rings is something very new. And this functionalist beauty stands for Tolkien, and he says it in a letter, as a challenge against a modern world darkened by two great worlds, and now I fear a third, where everything is useful, functional, and thus violent. These creations are all about themselves. They, are no, they don't have a purpose at the beginning, and they need to be so, because it is only through the divine-inspired gratuitousness that they can hope to attract fallen creatures to travel like Erendil on the path that leads to the discovery of meaning. It's all a paradox. It seems so paradoxical, if you want. But this paradox for Tolkien is at the very core of the nature of God. If you see number 10, the first quarter number 10, which is fantastic, this is a letter that Tolkien writes to a, a child, to a, I think, seven, eight-year-old child who has written to him about the meaning of life. And he says, I think the questions about purpose are only really useful when they refer to the conscious purposes or objects of human beings, or to the uses of things they design and make. As for other things, reality, our world, their value resides in themselves. They are. They are. They would exist even if we did not. But since we do exist, one of their functions is to be contemplated by us, because these things are other, and we did not make them. They seem to proceed from a fountain of invention incalculably richer than our own, Human curiosity soon asks the questions how and in what way did this come to be? And since recognizable patterns suggest design, may proceed to why. So you see how the function of creation is really to drive human beings to ask this sort of question, how and why, and therefore eventually to journey the, the journey there. And in conclusion, Therefore, I will say that to reawaken the desire for God, the question of this is the purpose of the Lord of the Rings. This is the purpose of creation, primary creation, but also secondary creation, like the Lord of the Rings. But this purpose is accomplished only because the book was not originally written with that in mind. It did not involve any conscious intellectual purpose of meaning of any kind. It was, and now we understand what says Tolkien said it, a nascent linguistic aesthetic. It was about itself. And because of all this aesthetic gratuitousness, inspired by, counseled from God, analogous to that of God, because that's what God does with us, he has been able to reawaken, however confusingly, we can see it in the Lord of the Amazon Prime discussion, this longing for the sea, like Erendel, longing for the sea, to travel beyond the materiality of, of, of our modern, postmodern world and travel again if you want the road which leads to the other side. This desire to walk again on the path that leads to meaning and in conclusion the prophetic hope 
and all of this contains. And it's to a prophetic hope because there is a prophetic hope at the very core of this. The very fact that we desire to go on the other side gives us the prophetic hope that we'll get there. And this is that essentially what the Lord of the Rings is about. Thank you very much. You mentioned at the beginning that hobbits still exist. What did you mean by that? Thank you for this question. The question is, I said hobbits do not exist. What do I mean by that? And I, I, I would say, if I wanted to be very precise, I would have said that the hobbits do not exist in our primary world. According to Tolkien, there are different layers of reality. There is the primary world, as he calls it, which is our reality. And then there is other layers of reality, which he called the secondary world. And each different layer of reality has its own, if you want, ontological status. And I will say the ontological status is not black and white. So everything, all layers, all planes, as he calls them, have an ontological status. They exist. So the hobbies do exist, but in an ontological status, which is different from ours. Okay, So we don't go out here we meet the hobbits in this plane, okay? But they exist in a different plane. This different plane uh, has an ontological status because it's the way we understand, that's the one with, what we do with create, the world around us, to be super precise. But I will still say that for Tolkien, it's important to accept, to recognize that the authority of the primary world is of God, okay? That we don't give reality to the things that we create. This is a, a nut of humility, if you want. Please. Okay. Um, so I love the talk. Thank you. Um, in I think it's the Akalabiaf, I can't pronounce half these words, um, when Numenor is destroyed and Al-Farazan and his army of dark Numenorians are buried underneath the mountains of Valinor by Iluvatar. And I'm wondering, like, the world is, like, made round, and it's basically made impossible, except for the elves, to reach Valinor. I guess, and it's almost like, is, is, is the events of the Lord of the Rings, basically Frodo essentially destroying the ring to almost re reconnect and serves the same purpose as Irindio does in the first stage, where he tries to bring back the beings of Middle-earth into his back with the divine. This is a very technical question for experts of the Lord of the Rings, and uh, so I will try to rephrase it in a simple way, in simple terms. Uh, before I was talking about Numenor, this kind of civilization that was destroyed on the model of Atlantis, uh, uh, and which, if you want, gave rise to a big change in history, according to Tolkien, as he was saying. Before Numenor, there was a way, there was, a, if you want, a path opened somehow from the Middle Earth to to the other side, okay, after this event, uh, the shape of the world changing is no longer uh, a plane, so it's no longer, you can no longer sail in a simple way, but becomes round. So it's quite clear how, according to Tolkien, there is a, a moment in which uh, the earth uh, is detached, is disconnected uh, from the world of the divine, okay? And that's the world of the Lord of the Rings. What the Lord of the Rings is set in an age where apparently the gods have stopped caring about Middle Earth, where apparently there is no longer a road, a path, which leads from Middle-earth to, um, 
to the world of the gods. So the question is, is does Frodo with the destruction of the ring, uh, if you want to reopen the way somehow, I mean, there is something going on like that. I personally think that, uh, and I find very interesting, but uh, there will be another lecture. I don't think that what Frodo does is reopen a way because the way remains closed. The earth remains round, okay? But, and that's what you want, is they discovered the Lord of the Rings, but the gods are active. They have decided to interact with the fallen Middle Earth in a different way. And that's what Gandalf does. Gandalf is an emissary of the angels in disguise. So we don't know who he is, but we clearly know from different sources, from hints in the Lord of the Rings, he has been sent to Middle Earth by God to help them, if you want, do what? Record a restore. That's what Aragorn does, a kingdom where, if you want, the primacy of God is recognized because at the, beginning, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, for the people who watched the movie or read the book, Argon goes to the top of the mountain and finds a tree. If you remember, the seed of a sapling of a tree, and he comes down and plants the tree. So if you want, uh, I wouldn't say it's a restoration of a previous state, what happens in the Lord of the Rings, is rather than the discovery that God is still active and that things keep flourishing, okay, in different ways. That's to put it in a different way, that the Garden of Lorien now fades away, Galadriel leaves, and the leaves of Lorien fade away, but the Garden of Lorien is replanted in the Shire. So I think the discovery of the ring is not a restoration, but is the hope and the message that actually God's narrative continues in a hidden way and in different forms. Thank you. But there will be a quite a long answer to this question. Please. So you're talking about how Tolkien just kind of gave himself over when he was creating his things. He didn't abuse them by kind of forcing his own thing into it. It seems in some way you're saying that those who are the greatest artists are the saints in a way of giving just themselves totally over to the gods kind of will and creation. I'm asking that's part of my first start of the question, if that is correct. Um, and then if so, in the writing the process and the process of him creating the work, um, that's wonderful and beautiful. Um, and it then creates something very beautiful, because um, it's divinely inspired. Uh, but then what does that mean for the kind of viewers and the looker on, those who look on? Is it because they know that it's now so beautiful and divinely created, or is there something more to it? it you know, what's the kind of the after side, the side for us who read it? Yeah, I think uh, I would say the creation, the, the dynamic of the creation and the dynamic of the reception is the same, meaning that that's why Tolkien is, was saying uh, the first way the Lord of the Rings must be read is to uh, enjoy it. It must be enjoyed. In many letters, uh, again, I'm thinking about letters written to him by a lot of different people, including a student uh, who told me, how should I read the Lord of the Rings? And he said, to him, you just need to enjoy it. So the very beginning, I think, even for the readers, we just need to enjoy the story. That's the whole point. Uh, going back to what George was saying already yesterday, if you want. So in enjoying the story, there is already everything. There is already something going on in our minds, in our hearts, if you want, which is already related to the enjoyment. By reading the Lord of the Rings, if you want, we are purifying the, our imagination to the okay. truth containing it. Yeah. And then there is the journey of exegesis, I would say, okay? So I think everyone then should, uh, or at least I wouldn't say go their way, okay? But should not prevent oneself to go their way of uh, doing the exegesis, okay? But what is going on in the Lord of the Rings, okay? But the Lord, the exegesis, so the attempt at understanding what's going on is secondary. It's never primary, okay? Because the primary, at the first level, there is the enjoyment of such. That's so important for talking, so important. Without enjoyment, 
the risk, the exegesis will become ideological in a sense. Okay, will become so. We, uh, we will use literature to do something different. Okay, but literature has a different art has a different purpose according to Tolkien. Okay, there are different theories, but according to Tolkien, the first purpose of art is to be enjoyed, to be contemplated, and the exegesis, which is important, is there, but is secondary. Like the Corbett said earlier, you know, kind of tearing apart the rose almost kind of. Yes, I will. I don't think I will be so negative about it in a sense, but uh, but I will say um, it's not necessary, and it's not. I will, it doesn't even add too much, okay? Because that's not the purpose of the Lord of the Rings. The purpose of the Lord of the Rings is not to convey in an intellectual form Catholic doctrine. It's more to do with uh, the affection. Newman will say, okay, bringing Newman a very important. Uh, figure who inspired Tolkien very much, I think is very useful. Uh, for the people who know the grammar of ascent, the Tolkien, Tolkien's uh, art has more to do with the affection of man, okay, with the purification of imagination. Okay? Since affection is so important in the process of knowledge, the Lord of the Rings, that's my view, but I think I'm right, that art <laughs> purifies the imagination, purifies the affection, therefore it makes more open, it reawakens a desire to go beyond, and there to discover the Christian truth, okay? But yeah. the Torah does not reveal Christian truth. It's more like preparatory, if you want. Yeah. It's more pedagogical, yeah. in the sense of opening up the imagination. But as we can see in our world, this is so, impo this is so important, yeah. because very often our knowledge stops at the level of affection. We don't want to learn something new. It's very late, and apologies for the delay. And thank you very much. We can continue the conversation later. <laughs>